One focus, one subject. Welcome to The Real Story, the podcast that brings together global experts to explain one issue shaping the news. BBC World Service podcasts are supported by advertising. Welcome to The Real Story from the BBC World Service. I'm Celia Hatton, and this week we're asking, why is the demand for fertility treatment rising globally? At least 50 million couples around the world can't conceive a baby on their own, and that seems to be an issue in both rich and poor countries and for both genders. In the first half of the programme, we'll be looking at why infertility is such a big issue. And then we'll examine some possible solutions from medical treatments to the need for changing attitudes towards childless couples. But first, let's introduce our panel. Dr. Geeta Nargun, she's the medical director of Create Fertility, a clinic specialising in in vitro fertilisation, or IVF. She's also a senior consultant gynaecologist at St. George's Hospital in London. She'll be joining us in a few moments. And Dr. Chana Jayasena, he's a senior clinical lecturer and consultant in reproductive endocrinology and andrology at Imperial College and Hammersmith Hospital in London. He's here with me in the BBC studio in central London. On the line from Lagos, Nigeria, we have Dr. Kemi Ilaje. She's a reproductive endocrinologist and founded the LifeLink Fertility Clinic in Lagos two years ago. And joining the conversation from Manchester in the UK, Natalie Silverman. She's the founder of the Fertility Podcast. She'll speak from personal experience, but also from those of her listeners in 50 countries around the world. Well, welcome to you all. We have almost an hour to delve into the complex topic that is infertility. But first, I want to start by asking you, all of you, to sum up your thoughts briefly by answering this question. Is infertility a hidden and growing problem. Chana, let's let's start with you, but I'm wondering if you can also give us just a general definition of, of mm. infertility to let us know sort of what we're what we're talking yeah, about here. Of course. So infertility is commonly defined as the inability for a couple to become pregnant to conceive within one year of trying. Whereas with female infertility, the question as whether it's becoming more common is complex. Certainly with male fertility, we know that there's objective evidence that over the last few decades in the West, in, in, the, in the US and the, in Europe, um, it is certainly becoming more common. Natalie, let's, let's hear your thoughts. Is infertility a, a hidden and growing problem? I definitely think it's sadly a growing problem. I think it's less hidden than it has been due to more people like me, a former patient, speaking out about it on social media and using our voice to, to have more conversations that I think are really needed. And Kemi Halajay, what, what do you think? Uh, is, it, is it hidden and growing? It is. Yes, it is. Infertility is hidden and growing. And can you tell me more from your experiences in Nigeria? What do you feel? What, what, are, what are women and men experiencing when it comes to infertility there? In Nigeria, infertility is, uh, is, uh, affects male and female both ways. But the presentation is easier with the women because they come to the clinic first, you know, undeniably. Being a mother, it's very important in the African culture. So it's easier for the woman to actually pursue that dream as that gives her some kind of importance in progeny for her family. So women present more, not because female infertility is more than male, but women present more. But statistics we have here shows is actually a 50-50 effect on both families. Okay, so the statistics are telling you a different story than the, than what you're seeing, actually, the, the patients who are showing up inside your office. Correct. 
Okay, well, before we go much further to discuss the global trends we're seeing around infertility, let's just take a moment to recognize that it really can be a devastating situation for for individuals who experience it. I want to hear now from Kelly De Silva. She's the founder of the Dovecote Childless Support Organization. And she first realized that she couldn't have a child naturally when she was quite young. And she started a long series of medical interventions to get pregnant. Let's have a listen. I started trying to conceive at the age of 24, having um, got married at 23. We tried for about a year without any success and then was referred to the fertility clinic. We started with six rounds of Clomid, which increases the eggs that you release each month. We had five cycles of that, which was unsuccessful. And on the last cycle, the sixth cycle, we actually got pregnant. Um, However, it was um, obvious from an early stage that things weren't quite right. And 11 weeks, I unfortunately miscarried, which was quite traumatic, as you can imagine, you know, a couple of years down the line of trying to conceive. It went on for a good three years before they decided to put us forward for IVF. On the second cycle, I was actually pregnant, which was amazing. I was delighted. And the second cycle, we'd actually had two embryos put back. So um, we went for the six-week viability scan. And I was quite nervous about multiple pregnancies because of all the risks associated with that. We went to the viability scan at six weeks. Um, I was lying down and had the scan and the nurses, the faces, I could just tell that something wasn't quite right. And um, it showed that there was actually no viable pregnancy and the sac was empty. It was a really tough afternoon and a you know, tough few weeks following that. So when did you come to the decision that you were going to stop fertility treatments? How did you, how did you come to that decision? It was after our our final cycle, we had that during the summer holidays, so I could just focus on that and stress levels would hopefully be down. So, yeah, went into that, but kind of had a feeling that this was it. And I delayed that last cycle by a year because in some ways I didn't want to face the reality of not trying anymore. But it became so much emotionally for both of us that actually something needed to change and we needed just to get on with our lives again because we'd spend most of our married life, eight years, nearly 10 years, trying for a baby. And, yeah, you just stop having fun and stop planning nice things and you don't move house just in case. So at the end of that and um, having that negative pregnancy test, knowing that that was it in some ways in a logical side, we thought, well, you know, that's it, we can move on with our lives. But actually, when it happened and the reality hit, I was sent into a very, very dark place because this was it. And I was left with the question, well, now what? You know, I'd spent years trying to get pregnant and everything was focused on having a baby. And once we decided that that was it, it was just this massive hole and... um, It took me a good few months to pull myself out of that. And I think initially I just had to wallow. And it's recognising and having some support made me realise that actually what I was experiencing was grief. 
you know the infertility and childlessness is grief it's a loss of a life that you thought you were going to have and whilst nobody can see it physical because I've not lost a physical baby actually it does affect us it was a life and you know I was pregnant twice and I had to grieve that we both had to grieve that it took a while for me to come round to thinking okay now what how can I turn this into a positive that was Kelly De Silva speaking about the emotional toll of infertility. Well, we've been joined now in the studio by Dr. Gita Nargund. Gita, how often do you encounter women with unexplained infertility like Kelly? Oh, it's quite common. It's kind of um, one in four or one in three, depending on where you work, but it's not uncommon. You know, Kelly brought out really the emotional side of infertility. And it's really distressing. Uh, You hear the same story from every woman. And it's just that bit, I think we forget how important that is, that they live with that and it puts life on hold, basically. That kind of raw emotion really comes through, didn't it? Natalie Silverman, listening to Kelly's story, are these the kinds of stories that you're hearing in your podcast? Yeah, I mean, it's so far reaching the effects. I think that people often don't understand it affects your work because you're having to make appointments or you're having to put things on hold. It affects your friendships because of conversations you don't want to have and of things you might not want to go to. And if you tell people, then it becomes all they talk to you about and you don't want it to define you. So it has a massive ripple effect on, on your, your life. I mean, it's the social stigma, isn't it? But it's also, you know, she talks quite personally about experiencing grief or a real grief. I've spoken to lots of women who when they've got to that point normally through having some counselling which is something that is is so vital as well that realisation that it is a grief giving it a name and that you are entitled as Kelly talked about to feel this thing because often there's there's not really any reference point to it it's not a kind of a given of something that you you expect to have to be going through so it's hard to deal with and dr kemi aloje you're on the line from from nigeria how often do you deal with couples who are who are forced to give up on conceiving a child it's it's very very it's very often we have to because back here one of the factors would be that ivf is out of pocket and is not funded by government and it's expensive so you have a lot of couples who's, who've been to different hospitals trying to just have this baby. Like she rightly said, it's a grief. And then life is put on hold trying to just have a baby that you're not sure may even come. Some of them grief and actually tip towards depression. And then when you have a depressed patient, treatment becomes very difficult. It becomes very difficult because it's something that's not very sure. They're not sure if the next financial boarding is going to turn out to be the result they have. And then you have these broken homes happening even in Africa because of infertility. People, actually the males, because it's, I mean, it's a man's world back here. You have them have, picking up different wives. It's until it dawns on someone that I've been married to three women and none of them has given me issues. Then the man stops to say, okay, let's think and do something about infertility. It's really, really dilapidating. It's really, really distressing. And when you're dealing with a depressed infertile patient, it's very stressful. So that's where you have to have 
specialists who have counselors with them. They need support groups. They need to be sure that, you know, it, it's it's just dealing in an ocean. You're not sure what, what you're going to encounter. So it's it's very tough. They have to be dealt with by specialists. They have to know that. And there should be some source of financing as well that would help women know that, okay, if this fails, I have something I can actually fall back on. People have had this financial burden cripple their homes. Women have resigned from work, thinking it's stress that's not making them get pregnant. They they get depressed from being at home, eating too much and overthinking. It can be stressful. Like she rightly said, counseling is the first beat of everything we need to do. We have to have pre-counseling for women going through infertility. You have to have during treatment counseling. You have to have post-treatment counseling. And when they're even positive, they're so scared about having a miscarriage, which is even a deeper grief. It's a phase that you have to go through with with families as a physician. It's notable to to hear about the, the emotional toll caused by infertility in different places around the world, but also the financial toll caused by the fertility treatments placed on couples who are trying to conceive a baby. And we're definitely going to be speaking about that later in the program. But I think for now, let's have a look at the wider trends behind infertility. Let, let's start with women. Why are so many experiencing infertility? And let's go to you, uh, Chana Jayasino. What are you seeing from your vantage point? Well, we know that with women, there are multiple reasons why there are more fertility problems. And a recent report, so um, published by the University of Oxford, suggests that a lot of them are societal. So, for example, increasing years of female education, increasing socioeconomic development in countries, increasing life expectancy of children, obviously is pushing people to plan for having fewer kids. And therefore, we know that the age of first motherhood uh, in the UK, as in many countries, is rising. Um, And I believe is about just over 30 years now um, for the first time in the UK. So what that means, of course, is it's very difficult to tease out from that biological changes that are happening over time. On the other hand, in, in men, there is a much more objective measure, which is sperm quality, which we can talk about later, which is less controversial. Gita Nargan, what do you think? Is it is it as simple as the fact that women are delaying getting pregnant f- for too long? If, if women started trying to conceive earlier in their 20s, would it be easier? Well, it's easier when if women start trying earlier, but we can't change that. Okay, We can't go back to Victorian times and change that. So that's the reality. But there are other reasons as well. And depending on which part of the world you live in, the causes are the predominant causes are different. There's more tubal factor infertility in Africa and some countries, and there's more male factor infertility in some countries. So essentially a rise in uh, male infertility, women leaving it too late. Tubal factor, because, you know, actually Public Health England announced this year about a rise, increase in gonorrhea and syphilis in the UK. So all these mm. are important because there's potentially tubal factor infertility associated with that. There are a number of factors. And of course, the societal side is true, but mainly women leaving it too late, increased male factor infertility and also tubal causes are actually contributing to increased fertility problems. It's a tricky thing to deal with, isn't it? Because often when we talk about leaving it too late, encouraging women to get pregnant earlier, it can sometimes be classified as fear-mongering in a way among women who want to have a career, who want to stay longer in the education system and to put off having a baby. Is it really that difficult to have a child after the age of 
35, for instance, that's always seen as the golden age. For example, my great-grandmother had her last child at 53. You know, it's not impossible, is it? No, it's not impossible at all, because if you look at the figures, couples try for two years up to the age of 40, then there's actually 80% chance of conceiving. So that's not true. It's just that there's a decline in fertility after the age of 35 due to reduction in equality and quantity. So it's just about raising awareness about the effect of age on reduced fertility. And we mustn't forget the man. Kemi just mentioned about what's happening in Nigeria and Africa. And I have actually been involved in a project in Africa for nearly a decade. Even when when it's a man's problem, the woman gets the stigma. And this is something we really need to address. And that is what has led to increased increased mental health problems, including suicidal feelings in women. But the important thing is that man's age matters as well. In women, fertility stops. In men, fertility declines. The quantity and quality of sperm decline after the age of 40. And only today we have research that's come out from Stanford University showing that men who father children at 45 or after 45 have children with increased health problems. It's quite important. We address both men and women when it comes to age. We're certainly going to be getting to the issue of male infertility just a little bit later in the program. But for now, I just I want to focus on female infertility and why women might be experiencing problems. Let's let's turn to you, Kemi Alade. What are you seeing in Nigeria? Why are women experiencing problems with infertility? Is it is it the same as in the UK? The major thing from clinical practice for me is actually, as she said, advanced maternal age. If you look at it retrospectively, it's a function of women trying to be financial supports in the family. It's important we create awareness. And we started this stuff we say we call fertility profiling. I mean, when we talk about female factor, age can be the only factor. For example, you have premature ovarian insufficiency or failure. And that means I don't have to be old to actually have no menses and no ovulation and no babies. So we're talking about awareness where young people can start profiling the fertility. If I know my FSH level, you said your maternal great-grandmother had a baby at 53. Some women are 40 they're already shooting down. It's about knowing your profile. Some people have this genetic fertility. Yes, not fully documented. You have it in some families. But we need young people to be aware. We need people the same way they screen for infectious diseases, the same way we screen for gonorrhea and all of that. We need to have young women start screening for fertility. Fertility profiling is key so that we begin to be able to put women in the spectrum that it belongs. If a man has azospermia in Africa, the woman is stigmatized. So if I'm getting towards 35, and as a physician, I'm able to start putting together to know my FSH level is actually getting reduced, my ovarian reserve is low, I can begin to plan a baby and then leave other things that aren't so timed. It's just a function of awareness creation. I can read, I could do my postdoctoral at any age if I want to. I can't have a baby at any age that I want to have a baby. So we have to reprioritize and have, because at the end of the day, it seems like a discrimination. Why can my brother be a professor and I can't be a professor? It becomes a gender disparity. Unfortunately, it is what it is. Women have to be trained and told we have to do things in their time out. 45 and above from the Stanford study says, male infertility comes in. But the female, if you look at it, 40 to 60% of the women coming to the clinics are coming after they're over 40. That's when they're financially ready, but that's when they have ovarian reserve that's very low. And then we may resort to, in some cases, 
donor embryos or donor gametes or donor sperm. And then some people, you, you just don't go on the high street and grab a man and say, I want to get married. People should be taught females, young women, and that's what my awareness is about back here. Cryopreservation is not cryopreservation for cosmetic reasons. Cryopreservation because while I'm waiting, while I'm going for my education, I can have my good quality eggs banked. So you're saying when you say cryopreservation, you're talking about freezing of, of, freezing of a woman's of, eggs. of a woman's eggs yes. while she's at the, at the peak of fertility so that she can have access to it when she's ready to get married. It would just be so unfair to have me stop halfway to say, because I need to have a baby and then it looks like my life is kind of truncated. But it's the truth. If you don't stop it, something is going to stop you. When you're talking about your patients, the patients you're seeing, are we seeing a, a class difference? Are you seeing uh, people in, in, in the upper classes, middle and upper classes who are really dealing with infertility because they're the ones who are putting off pregnancy until a later age? Or is, is that what you're seeing in Nigeria? Correct. Upper class career women with advanced maternal age. You realize that's the major diagnosis, advanced maternal age. And if you look back at it, it's a function of all we had to do to get the money. So awareness is something we have to focus on. In my reading, I also read that some women in Nigeria are having problems with infertility because of sexually transmitted diseases. That are not properly treated, correct. And that's why you need specialists. If I had to do my hair, I know where to go to. If I had to get my clothes on, I know who to go to. If a young woman would have fertility issues, where do they go? So there's still the gap that needs to be filled. There's still specialists. There needs to be access to education, access to information, people that you can approach. You can. It's not the same way as in the European societies and in Nigeria. You can walk up and talk to your mother. I think I'm Egypt. I think I have STDs. You don't have access to all of that. Anyone can fight it and say, oh, there's centers where they have it. The, the facilities may be available. Uh, is there capacity building? Is there, are the capabilities strengthened? Maybe not. Let's turn to the elephant in the room, though, male infertility. A major global study released last year that examined the sperm counts in the U.S., Europe, Asia and New Zealand found that they've fallen by 50 percent over the last four decades. Incidentally, a study out this week from China said that Chinese men could be having the same problem. At the Fudan Shanghai University Sperm Bank, only 10 percent of semen collected from over 100 donors aged under 35 reportedly met the bank's standards. So let's turn to you, Chana Jayasena. Do we know why this is happening? In essence, we're not sure. However, the two big candidate causative factors are the rising trend in obesity around the world in developed and developing countries, and also the rise of pollutants that are termed endocrine disrupting chemicals, EDCs. And there is a real evolution of evidence in the last few years, convincing evidence that pollutants, the plastics, the things like BPA, etc., that you find in plastics that are everywhere, that are in our food chain, on our toothpaste, everywhere, may be adversely affecting reproductive function by mimicking oestrogen-like hormones, which counteract the effects of masculine hormones such as testosterone. And just to remind you, you're listening to a podcast edition of The Real Story from the BBC World Service, this week looking at fertility. Each week we tackle a different topic and you you can download the program every Friday. I encourage you to subscribe so you won't miss an edition. And there are also many other BBC World Service podcasts to choose from. You could try Witness, our history series told by the people who were there.
And please do let us know what you think of this podcast from The Real Story or any ideas for topics you'd like us to look into. You can email us at therealstory at bbc.co.uk. But now, let's get back to this edition of The Real Story with me, Celia Hatton, looking at fertility. And my guests? We're joined by Dr. Gita Nargund and Dr. Chana Jayasena. Both of them are here with me in the BBC studio in central London. On the line from Lagos, Nigeria, we have Dr. Kemi Iloje. And in Manchester, Natalie Silverman. She's the founder of the Fertility Podcast. Natalie, let's get back into the discussion with you. We were just talking about male infertility, and it's a subject you have experience with. Yeah, it's the kind of reason that my podcast came to be. We had ICSI treatment in 2014. Can you can you explain what that is? ICSI is treatment when the issue is male factor. So it in a crass way, and I'm sure Gita and Chan will explain better, but the um, the sperm is literally injected into the egg, so it's not just left to uh, to to join in the in the dish, so to speak. It's helped as much as it can be, and we had to go through that process after trying for a year. I was 36. We went and started to have tests. We had a fertility MOT, which is a test where I had some tests on my hormone levels and my husband had further kind of semen analysis. And we were told in a quite careless and insensitive way, my husband was told the problem was was him. We were told the problem was with my husband on the 23rd of December and that we would have to have ICSI. And we were pretty much then left to our own devices to then work out what happened next and what that meant. Geetan Argund, you mentioned male infertility. Why is this not discussed more? I think overall it's only in the last few years we have started talking more about fertility and infertility in general. So I think men don't seem to discuss it so much. And it's the woman who goes to the doctor. And you know why? Even in the National Health Service today, it is the woman who is the patient, even when it's a man's problem. The man is not even registered as a patient. He just comes along with the partner. So in some ways, we really need to work on raising awareness about male fertility and male infertility. Men need to start talking about it more openly. And what Natalie said is true. And what is important here is it is crucial that we have fertility education. So we need to start talking about the rise in male infertility and how men can help themselves and what treatments are available. So what what treatments are available for men who are experiencing infertility problems? um, Yeah, depending on how severe the problem is. Okay, there are situations where we can help men with their lifestyle. And my colleague just mentioned about obesity. Okay, there are a number of things we can actually help men to improve their lifestyle and help themselves to improving their sperm. That should be the first option. And that's what we normally do. And only if that is not possible and if the partner's clock is ticking faster and you have to move ahead, then we're talking about treatments. But proper investigation and advice have to come first. And then we're talking about maybe insemination or ICSI, intracytoplasmic sperm injection in an IVF setting, and a number of other treatments are available. Um, Just to follow up from what Gita said, it's amazing that we are just now performing one of the first ever studies looking at trialling treatments for male infertility. Actually, there are lots of studies showing the relationship between obesity and poor sperm quality, as you mentioned. 
But it's only recently that we are now doing in the UK the first studies to actually see, well, how well does that improve your fertility if you lose, say, 10 kilos of weight? Because, the th- because I think this is one of the key moments in a man's life when you can fundamentally transform their health. In other words, I think that the people who are presenting obese to the clinic um, of, of Gita's and others um, with obesity and a poor sperm count in 20 years are going to also have erectile dysfunction, in 30 years are going to have a heart attack or a stroke. And actually there's a public health issue here. We just need to speak about this more, don't we? I mean, Natalie Silverman, I'd love to hear your thoughts on this because I know you've had personal experience, but also you you host a podcast. Are we speaking more or are you speaking more about male infertility globally with your listeners? I think more and more men are slowly starting to talk, but they're still reluctant. There's a pride issue going on and there's also the secrecy around it. I know that there's Facebook groups where they're for men only because men feel so uncomfortable talking about this. I have met some men who, having decided to speak to their male friends have actually found that they have been supported and it is very I think very slowly becoming less taboo. Kemi Alaji, I'm I'm interested to hear your thoughts on this. How do you break it to men that they're that they might have a problem? The problem might be with them, as as Natalie uh Silverman said a little while ago. What what's their reaction when you have to tell them that? Natalie is very correct when men just need to hear it for themselves. It's easier when they internalize it themselves. So it's education that we need. We need to. And then when you tell a man about that spectrum of lifestyle modification, diet, exercise, reduction of number of cigarette intake, alcohol, it's a thin line between a male fertility and ego. Just um, all I wanted to just say on the male side was that my husband and men that I've spoken to have said that if they are in treatment, that they do often feel overlooked in the in the consultations. And it's something that I know men struggle with when the conversation's happening in the consultancy room and the woman is the one that's being spoken to, they feel ignored. And I think that's something that we need to address as well. That's a, that's a good point. Thank you. I, I think we've gone through the problems of infertility that are being experienced by both genders, but what do we do about this issue? So let's let's have a look at the medical solutions first. So we have IVF or in vitro fertilization. That's a common fix that's offered up, but it's not without controversy. It's expensive for one. The costs are out of reach for many around the globe. Uh, Gita Nargun, you run a fertility clinic. Is, is IVF a catch-all solution, even if it is quite expensive? Not in every case. I mean, IVF is not the only solution. There are a number of other solutions for fertility problems, okay? And we, we talked about men and women. We really need to talk about single women, same-sex partners and all that as well because we are now creating families for everyone and we celebrate that, okay? So single women and same-sex partners will need help from fertility clinic in the form of insemination to start with. And if that didn't work, they will have to consider IVF treatment. But solutions overall can be anything from lifestyle changes and improving natural fertility and helping themselves. And that that can happen many times. So it is very important that we give them an early diagnosis and advice so that they know if there are, there's anything like underlying medical conditions. So we mustn't forget that we can help them without any fertility treatment. And then if, we, if they do require, and we, women who are not ovulating, as long as 
there isn't any other underlying cause and as long as they are not grossly overweight, they will require tablets in the form of ovulation induction to help them to ovulate. Simple treatment that can help many women. Then if that doesn't help, sometimes some women will require some injections with ovulation. If that doesn't work in some situations, there is something called intrauterine insemination which is simply insemination. So IVF is really not the first treatment. Okay. So and in some situations, yes, it is the first treatment for those with blocked tubes where there is a severe sperm problem, then you will have to go for that. But it is extremely important that we actually treat them on a case-by-case basis with the least invasive, least medicalized treatment, and also the least expensive treatment. You bring up a good point. I, I, I think your point is really important, that IVF is an important option for single women, for same-sex couples. I, I can see how that, that, that's a vital point, and we, do, we can't overlook that. But also, as you've mentioned, it can be quite expensive. It also can be, the cost can be brought down. I know, Chana Jayasina, you've uh, mentioned that there is an ethical problem with some IVF clinics, and in some cases, the push to continue treatment. Yes, I mean, obviously... There is a risk. There is a potential conflict of interest. And, and, I'm, and I'm obviously not pointing the finger at, at Gita because there's several excellent responsible clinics out there. But of course, if there is, there is, you know, you are dealing with a patient, but also a customer. And if one was to say, you know, I need, I need a baby, I have infertility, sort that out. The facts from the Human Fertility and Embryology Authority, which governs IVF treatment in the UK, suggest that there's a lot of um, very invasive, very expensive forms of fertility treatment, such as intracytoplasmic sperm injection, which should be reserved for severe cases of, of poor sperm function. But we know that a very large proportion of the treatment cycles in the UK are this most expensive form. So I think there is a risk that we are pushing for, unlike the rational course of action that Gita suggests, the most expensive course of action, because that gives you results. However, it pushes up the cost for the patient and potentially the risks to the patient as well. Natalie Silverman, what are your thoughts on this? The, the, the kind of range of options, some of them quite expensive. Have, have your listeners reported back to you on this? Yeah, I completely agree with Chana. It's a minefield. Um, people talk about, especially if they might have had experience of one clinic and they go to another clinic and these add-ons are suggested and they're not aware that they need to ask the questions about their being evidence-based and people are so wanting to try everything. And if you have, as we were fortunate enough, to have access to funding from the NHS, the National Health Service, when it comes to a sibling, a second child, and I appreciate we're talking about people as well who haven't even had a first, but the infertility journey continues. The costs that are never discussed are if you have, if you're fortunate enough to have frozen embryos, the storage of those, and then the costs of further treatment down the line. And I think that all of this needs to be really made clear when people are going into this kind of treatment. Natalie, you bring up a really good point and another possible solution that we can discuss when talking about infertility, which is egg freezing. Last year, it emerged that Facebook, Google and Apple are all offering or are planning to offer egg freezing as a perk to their female employees. It was really a controversial suggestion at the time. Is it a viable solution? Gita Nargan, what do you think? Yeah, it can be a viable solution in some cases. Uh, We know now from the data that um, the most common reason for women 
to delay having a child is um, not having a suitable partner. And we know that women are leaving it late and that is contributing to increased fertility problems, miscarriages and increased cost. So it is a viable option in many cases, but not not routinely. Okay, So I think there's a case to be made about the employer and even the state funding, partial funding for egg freezing, because in the long term, we will benefit from it. But we have to have the formula right in order to achieve that. So egg freezing is here to stay, to help some women who have to delay having children. How viable is it, though? What's the success rate, do you think? Yeah, the success rate, the, the main results have really come from Spain, Italy, and some other countries. The UK success rates, we still have to wait and see because uh, our regulator was collecting data and they're still looking at the success rates. But the success rates from larger studies at the moment, as long as we use the modern vitrification, which is a flash freezing method for freezing then over 80% of eggs can survive the thawing process. Around 70% can fertilize. And the ultimate outcome can be similar to fresh eggs because we know 5% of eggs, fresh eggs from stimulated cycles are capable of making babies. And that's exactly the same number when it comes to frozen eggs. But we have to be very careful when we assess this data because it's the age of the egg that matters. Jana Jayasena? I have a, I guess I have a, a concern about the the pressure that this may put on women in society as well. And, and it, obviously, I'm speaking as a man. However, I've I've spoken at a number of public debates, you know, organised by the British Science Association, etc., on 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 what we term social egg freezing, in other words, freezing for something other than a something like having cancer treatment. So, in other words, because you feel that you are at a certain age and want to freeze your eggs. Basically protecting yourself yes. for the future. It's an really. insurance yeah. policy. Mm. And I mean, you know, Geeta's very elegantly told us about the up-to-date success rates. But if you Google egg freezing, what you don't, what we have is the absence of some informative authoritative sites such as by the National Health Service, government-led websites, to spell out what those chances are. Because people, it's very difficult to, to access the take-home baby rate. In other words, if I was to undergo this procedure, what would be the chance when I've pinned all my hopes on this, when I'm in my mid-40s or 50s, of actually taking home a baby? And I think we need some regulation about and some authoritative evidence for that. And what is the chance? So I understand that... We are uncertain. I mean, we have an evolving technology. And I think it's certainly if a woman, say, who was 35 years old, was to freeze her eggs and her ovarian reserve, there are marks of that was average, there would be less than a 50% chance of having a baby at the end. Um, I can I can comment on that because these have come from large studies yes. showing that women under the age of 35, if yes. she freezes around 12 eggs, yes. there's around 50% chance of success later in life, which is the same with fresh eggs, yes. to be honest. Yes. So, But the important thing is to rely on large studies yes. that have actually demonstrated the success. And it is quite important that we need that data to be mm. published on authoritative websites but we cannot deny women the opportunity to freeze eggs when there is reliable evidence from large studies and we should use that. But the important thing is not to oversell it, mm. OK, to be realistic, because we now know that it is equal fresh and frozen eggs for a given age. But important 
thing is to give the correct message for their age and give them their individual success rate so that they can make an informed decision. And I must point out, I don't like the word social egg freezing because it does sound as if it is, she's doing it because it's a mere wish rather than a medical need. I prefer to use the word age banking, which is actually anticipated gamete exhaustion banking. Because this is a medical need for some women. It's not just a, a medical need. Because of the decline in fertility that a woman faces due to age. And this is a preventative medicine for her rather than something she's doing just for social reasons. Okay, well, we've, we've explored some of the medical solutions and we've, we've, we've acknowledged that they don't always translate into success, into a bouncing baby all of the time. So if a couple can't conceive, there are other options. And a, a life without children can also be happy or one can adopt. This is a point that I put to Kelly De Silva. Adoption is something that it's kind of when you say that you can't have children, that's the automatic response. Why don't you just adopt? And sometimes when I have felt brave enough to say, why didn't you adopt? The response I get is I wanted my own children. And I think it's that maternal instinct that I felt very much um, that I wanted the whole experience. And if there was a way of doing that, that was something that I wanted to do. I've always been really maternal, always wanted a big family. So it was kind of just expected. I come from a big Irish family as well. I've got nearly 30 cousins and lots of aunties and uncles. So, you know, there isn't anybody else in our family that's had fertility issues. And I think that was a thing as well, because I felt incredibly isolated and that I was going through this on our own. And it was happening very easily for everybody else. The pressure from family and friends and and society as a whole to have children, how did that affect you? It's an expectation that you will have children. So for a while, when people said, oh, you know, when did you get married? Or you say that you're married and it's kind of, oh, when you're having children. Um, I'd kind of just brushed it off with, you know, not yet, you know, in time. And and then actually over time, I've become more honest. But the expectation has been there, not necessarily from family and friends. They've been really supportive through the process. They just want us to be happy at the end of the day. And, um, you know, through my work now, I do have a a happy and fulfilled life doing what I do through those experiences however mum would love us to have children you know not for her necessarily but for us. So should we encourage women and men to accept that a childless life can be a happy life? Natalie Silverman what do you think? I think from having conversations with women and men who are now at a stage where they can accept that they can live a life childless, not by choice, I I don't think it's something we, I don't think encourage is the right word. I think people should be able to see that there are communities of people that can guide them. It is a bereavement, as we've spoken about. It is a slow process, but there are ways and there are tools to deal with situations of people asking questions of times associated with family, whether it's the summer holidays, where, you know, when you're booking to go on holiday or whether at Christmas time, different times of the year that can be difficult. I think it's worth highlighting that there are communities of people and you don't have to do that alone if that's the point that you've reached. Kemi Aloje in in Lagos, do, do, do your patients who, who are unsuccessful in having children, do you feel that they're able to tap into this kind of wider community? Yes, they can. But because even in pre-counseling before treatment starts, you need to let a patient know this is in 100%. 
And for some people, it may be the option in the spectrum may be adoption or it may be helping families support them through happy childless leaving. And for some people, some people have actually spoken about their experiences and they've talked about because we have a support group and then we find them talk about the fact that some of them have adopted pets, some of them have adopted babies beforehand and then they've been able to have a baby afterwards. It's some For some couple, it's actually easier to have the feel of that baby. Sometimes it's the maternal instinct. I just want to have that feeling of having my own baby. And then when they adopt, they're even sometimes able to go through the IVF process better for us or even in assisted conception like in inseminations because they're calmer, they're better, their hormones are more settled, they understand what it, it's a maternal instinct. It's a feeling of wanting to experience what you should experience as a woman. It's, it's, it's a feeling and then the society puts the pressure more because, I mean, when you're married for five years, people just say to you without thinking, how are you and how are the kids? And then it boils back to you like every conversation you're having feels like something is missing. It's, it's not a tangible feeling, but it's a very visible loss. People have to know from the start of a procedure. Gita said something that's very important. She said, people need to know. It's not about just freezing your eggs when you're 25 and hoping that they'll be okay when you're 40. With everything you do, there's the possibility of not having a baby to live with. So there's that option of childless living. There's also an option of doing things that make you happy while you're still trying to get the baby. Because for every woman I have counseled going through infertility, it feels like the world is stopping just to have a baby. It can actually be side by side while people find happiness. Not forgetting in retrospect that every time we're sad, our hormones are warped. And when the hormones are warped, pregnancy becomes difficult. For a couple who's had 11 failed IVF cycle, all they did was just a vacation. They just took a break. There's enormous social pressure on women in particular in Nigeria to to have a baby. Those who who aren't able to conceive, what does society tell them about, about what's happening? Is it that they're cursed in some way? Is that right? It could even be the gods are angry. You know, there's just so many bits to it, but we are creating awareness. What not to say to a patient who's trying to conceive? That's very important. And also, you need to also help the couples build their self-esteem. They need to know it's not an impossibility. People have had failed IVF cycles and they've actually gotten pregnant naturally. So it's not the end of the world. It, it requires a lot of support. It requires a lot of funding. It requires a lot of, it requires a lot of awareness and education. But we can't deny that it's a social stigma. And every woman, especially the women, maybe the men aren't talking about it, they feel the loss so much that you can see it in their everyday life. Gita, uh, as you, as Kemi was speaking, I could see you nodding your head. Yes, because I have worked with this African project for several years, for more than a decade now. And I know exactly what she's saying. And it's, we have to do absolutely everything to remove this stigma of infertility. And that has got to be the focus. And to me, the message from me is really fertility education is the key. We must help women and men achieve closure when we can't help them and they can't achieve a success because without helping them to achieve closure, we cannot help them to move on. They have a lot to offer in their lives and we've got to help them with that. And we've got to make fertility treatment affordable so that more people can have access to it and also safer because we need to remove unnecessary invasive treatments, unnecessary drugs to make it not only cheaper but also safer. There are a number of things we have got to do and the journey has begun.
well, the journey might have begun, but we're coming towards the end of this edition of The Real Story. But let's let's try to end this program by attempting to jump forward into the future. Where do you think we're going to be when we're talking about global infertility in 10 years? Natalie Silverman, let's start with you. Oh, my goodness. I don't think it's going to improve. I hope um, that there is a lot more awareness as we've all been speaking about the importance of education in schools so that girls know if they don't have a period or a painful period or a guy, a boy knows if they've had issues, undescended testes, all sorts of these things that they are talked about and they know to go and have tests and checks as early as they can and hopefully that will help empower people to to know where they stand. Kemi Ilaje? I say education awareness, access to funding and support would go a long way to help women and men going through infertility. Well, if I look at the UN population data statistics, the UN says that the global population is going to increase and the Europe's population is going to drop by 14% by 2050. That's the predicted population level at the moment. But infertility is on the rise and we need to actually have our strategy to prevent infertility and to protect people's fertility. So we cannot rely on fertility treatments. We need to achieve protection of fertility and prevention of infertility and access to treatment. So education and access to treatment really is my mantra. And Dr. Chana Jayasena, let's end with you. So I, I, I want to echo the, the, the comments previously. I mean, I think that infertility has its roots in society and in, 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 in stigma and prejudice. And I think we can't actually move forward until we actually begin with education and improve access and um, equality to access. But I think techn- but history shows um, something really encouraging, that fertility treatment is a pioneer, a trendsetter. Uh, it's an early adopter of technologies where you can translate things from things from the bench to the bedside, as it's called. And I think the future is very bright and I think we'll be better equipped um, year on year to deal with this. Okay, an optimistic note with which to end the programme. So that's it for this week on The Real Story. Thanks to our guests, Kemi Ailojay, Chana Janasina, Gita Nargund and Natalie Silverman. If you'd like to listen to the programme again or any other from the archive, you can listen back online by searching for BBC The Real Story. If you liked this week's programme, make sure you never miss another edition and subscribe to our podcast. You can find us simply by searching for The Real Story in your podcast app. And we'd love to hear your thoughts on the programme. You can email us at therealstory at bbc.co.uk. From me, Celia Hatton and the team, that's The Real Story for this week. Thanks for listening.